This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Well, as many of you who are listening know, we generally interview an author about a nonfiction topic. It could be politics, it could be history, it could be psychology. But it occurred to me that the number of books coming out this fall is unprecedented. And it might be fun to bring someone on who's a genius at talking about new books uh, that are out or old books that are out for us to share with you some of the books we want to read, have read, or thinking about reading, or you should know about. So I am delighted uh, that Bill Goldstein has agreed to appear, um, well, not I guess not appear, uh, but to be with me on Just the Right Book. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Bill reviews books and interviews authors for NBC's Weekend Today in New York. He was the founding editor of the New York Times Books website, um, which is now a gangbusters website uh, for reference. He's got a PhD in English, in case you don't think he knows what he's talking about. He's currently writing a biography of Larry Kramer to be published by Crown, and uh, he is the, uh, he was the 2019-20 fellow at the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. And his book, The World Broken Two, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, D.H. Lawrence, and E.M. Foster was uh, published in 2017. And I just adored uh, that book. And Bill came uh, to R.J. Joyas and did an event for that. Well, Enough about Bill. We have a lot of books to cover. So, Bill, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you, Roxanne. I really appreciate it. I mean, from that biography, I think I'd listen to myself, although knowing (laughs) myself, I uh, often often really don't listen to my own best uh, intuitive sense of books. So uh, I'm I'm pleased about what you said. And I was so happy uh, when my book was published to speak at RJ Julia. I've always revered you as an authority and have loved talking to you over the decades that I have known you. And it was, as I say, such a thrill to appear at that great, great bookstore. Your oh, bookstore. thank you. Um, Thanks, I, Bill. I said then, and I'll say t- today, I mean, I was so thrilled that my husband, um, uh, Blake, has family in Madison, Connecticut, because we knew about R.J. Julia uh, from the beginning. Uh, oh, so. nice. Nice. Uh, that's right, because didn't you just celebrate your 20 20- fifth anniversary? Yes, yes. I mean, I was very young. So was he when we met. And um, <laughs> uh, but yes, we did celebrate our 25th anniversary in May. So thank you, Mary. Yeah. So soon on because RJ Joy is 31. So so Bill, would you want to agree or challenge me about the fact that the number of big books coming out this fall seems unprecedented? Oh, it do, it is. I mean, I've just never experienced a fall where there were just so many major books every single week. And uh, a lot of them, you know, it's not just, I mean, when I say just, I mean, it's not just writers like John Grisham or James Patterson, you know, who have books very, very frequently. I mean, there is just a logjam of literary fiction and major biographies. I mean, I, I don't know if everybody was so productive in the pandemic and then they've rushed these books out. I know some books were postponed from last year, but uh, during the pandemic, but I thought those books had sort of uh, been published in this spring and early in the summer. I remember that uh, some some books were postponed even a year, but uh, I have never been so afraid of keeping up with everything that is coming because there's so much I want to read. And then just even when you're an omnivorous reader like you are, or I try to be, uh, you know, you you have to give up. I mean, it's a triage. I mean, it's a triage for readers. It's a triage for the experts too. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
Let's be honest. Whether you're back in the office or still in your sweatpants working from home, life's day-to-day -day responsibilities lacks the fun we all want and deserve. If you're looking for a sign to use some of that hard-earned PTO and have some much-needed fun, look no further. FunJet Vacations is a one-stop shop for all your vacation needs. And as experts in the industry, FunJet Vacations offers customers a fast, easy, and fun way to book their next vacation with exclusive package deals to all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. For a limited time, our listeners can use promo code FUNJET75 for $75 off your next FunJet vacation at Ryu Hotels and Resorts. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly resort or an adults-only getaway, there's a Ryu Hotel and Resort for you. To get started, just go to funjet.com or contact your travel advisor and you'll be out of the office in no time. Offer is only valid at funjet.com when booked by October 15th for travel through December 21st. Restrictions apply. Here's what I'll suggest we do, Bill. Why don't we uh, both talks about, talk about some of the books that we have loved and read, whether this summer or a book that's just out or a book that's coming out. And then we'll take a little bit of a break and talk about how do you get to read all these books? Like what, what do you, how do you read? What do you, how many pages do you give the book? But let's start with the books. So share with us, Bill, some of the books that you just read or can't wait to read uh, right now. Well, I wanted to say a couple of things about books that I loved this summer. I think people have, uh, every season, uh, people have uh, romantic attachment, you know, summer books, fall books seems to you know, make everybody uh, excited because there are so many new things and they're going to be inside reading by the proverbial fireside or something. And then winter books where you uh, go in for a long, immersive uh, read during you know, January and February and then spring, you know, awakening books. But summer books to me uh, feel like vacation and you, know, you, you both immerse yourself and read something light. And so I don't want people to forget about all the great things that happened this summer. I read uh, one book I just can't stop thinking about called The Great Mistake by Jonathan Lee, mm. which is a historical novel, uh, one of my favorite genres, although there are so many different kinds of historical novels that's barely you know, uh, encompassing anything now to say it's a historical novel. But it was so beautifully written about a person I had never heard of, uh, uh, an important New Yorker of the 19th century, and Andrew Haswell Green, and his mysterious life, his mysterious death. We begin with uh, his being shot on the steps of his house. I mean, this is at the very opening of the book in 1903. And then we move back in time to figure out how he got there. I don't think anything uh, is ever solved about you know, who he is. And that's what I loved about this book. It wasn't afraid to probe deeply and still leave so much unresolved and what is the great mistake. And uh, it's an unbelievably beautiful portrait of this man uh, who was not always a good man. I mean, in a lot of ways, he was the 19th century Robert Moses. I mean, changing the landscape of New York. When you look at all the projects and buildings that he was involved with, um, and so he left his mark on the city, and yet he is a kind of blank slate for Jonathan Lee to, to fill in. And he had his detractors, he had those who admired him, and he had a kind of secret inner life. So I loved The Great Mistake, and I would hope that even as people are moving into fall, they don't forget that uh, as a summer book. Uh, another book I loved uh, was Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. So those are two books I would say from summer I would not want to forget as we move into fall. That is also a historical novel um, about uh, a, a not real figure uh, of, of the 20th century, uh, an aviator who is lost in the Antarctic. And you'd think that it's sort of like the story of Amelia Earhart, but of course, Amelia Earhart is in the book. So we at least have our attention drawn away from the fact it's a biographical novel about, about Amelia Earhart. And this woman uh, has her own great adventures. Again, a long uh, 
novel. This is at the other extreme from The Great Mistake. This is you know, twice as long. And it takes us through the 20th century and a whole slice of American experience. And then is contemporary because a movie is being made of this woman's life. And then we also get the present day story of the actress, the young uh, actor, performer, who is going to be playing her in the movie. So uh, those two parts come together. Uh, so those are two books that I would say, don't forget as we move into fall. So we're going to talk mainly about fall books, but I think we should uh, keep those in mind. And then, you know, I, as, as fall, as we get later and later into the year, then maybe I'll come back and we could talk about our favorite books of the year. But those are two that'll be on the list. Okay, and and a quick response. I loved The Great Mistake, but one of the problem, I loved it. I just, the language is beautiful. I loved learning about Adam Green, but one of the problems I have with historical fiction is I don't know which part is accurate and which part is fiction. So now I've gone down the rabbit hole of reading about, did he really have a relationship with Tilden? Who was he? What else do we know? I was fascinated by the madam of the bordello who then bought up a lot of real estate. But, you know, was that a real person? And what's that about? So I love the book. But but then I worry that I have false facts in my head that really aren't true and I get mixed up. The Great Circle, we'll talk about a little bit more because it's one of the books that a lot of our staff love and I couldn't get into it and put it down. So one of the questions we'll talk about later is what's the right time to bail on a book and what's too soon? And I love that we disagree and that even your staff and you disagree. I mean, yeah, I think is is wonderful. Uh, you know, when you, I mean, I know I've you know been to book clubs and things where people will have very different ideas of books, and I love that. Uh, you know, your staff knows how you feel, and you know maybe some uh, customers also know. Well, Roxanne didn't think so highly of this book, but you know uh, X, Y, and Z really loved it. So uh, take you know take that into account. Exactly. Exactly. So let's get to the fall. Yes. Uh, which of the big books for the fall uh, have you gotten to finish or start? Well, um, one of the books that I'm, people have talked about endlessly uh, and you know, I think was probably the most uh, widely ballyhooed, whether it's good or not, you know, we'll talk about, uh, is Sally Rooney's new book, which was published. Mm -hmm. Uh, last week on the Tuesday after Labor Day. So as soon as, you know, you could honestly say something might be a quote fall book, uh, that book swept, you know, the play. it's sort of like having a Steven Spielberg movie open on Memorial Day weekend or something like that. Uh, I am an admirer of Sally Rooney's. I mean, a lot of people uh, don't love her books. I mean, more people do love her books. Uh, I think she's become a kind of shorthand for a certain kind of young, I mean, she's about 30 now, uh, writer, a certain kind of, uh, to some people, glib, but I think uh, probing uh, style of writing. She's an Irish writer. And her new book uh, is called Beautiful World, Where Are You? And I thought it was a wonderful advance on what she's done before. Very similar. I mean, so it's not as if you're in a completely different universe. I think you'll recognize that it's Sally Rooney's young uh, characters uh, finding their way in the world, ha uh, falling in love, are they in love, having sex, uh, communicating through conversations. One of her books is called Conversations with Friends. And this one is very inventive, uh, lots of emails back and forth. Uh, and I thought um, funny in a lot of ways, sly wit is what I would hmm. say. Uh, there's, a, there's an autobiographical character, uh, a very successful novelist um, who's ill at ease in the world. And uh, some of that can seem self-pitying. I mean, if you want to look at it that way, well, what does Sally Rooney or her doppelganger have to complain about? She's a best-selling novelist uh, with a huge uh, following and lots of money. Uh, but I thought that there was a, a, a wit, a knowing wit, uh, insider kind of glimpse that, that 
took herself, she wasn't taking that character too seriously, even if the character herself often took herself too seriously. Uh, so, so Bill, do you think that the wit in her new book is a continuation of the wit that she had in normal people or conversations with friends or an evolution of her writing? I thought it was an evolution. I don't remember mm -hmm. from those books, you know, particular humor. I mean, I, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it uh, in terms of the self portrait. Uh, but I, I did think that, uh, I mean, Sally, Sally Rooney writes beautiful sentences. So there's always a wit. It might not be a kind of aphoristic wit um, uh, about, about her writing. I mean, I think she writes beautiful sentences, which to me always show uh, any person who writes beautiful sentences uh, seems to me, even if they're serious sentences, to know, uh, have an inner wit that knows the balance of words and how the rhythms of mm -hmm. language work. And so that's a kind of wit. It's not a ha-ha wit. So I would say it is an evolution. And yet, as I say, it's familiar enough. I mean, these characters uh, are different names and they are in slightly different situations. But same ilk. But it's the same ilk. And so it's just a kind of shift of perspective, which perhaps comes from, you know, the, the fact that this is her first book written after her great success. I mean, she's not afraid, I think, yeah. to uh, talk about herself in a kind of knowing way, I guess. That knowing is what I would say. The kind of wit is a knowing wit. Um, so she's one of the books that I put down. Oh, and I don't remember whether I put it down because I didn't care or something else was more magnetic. Mm -hmm. But to talk about a, a follow-up book that I am in the midst of and mesmerized by is Lauren Groff's book, Matrix. Oh, which I so, so want to read. Oh, it, Bill. So for uh, those of you listening... Lauren Groff wrote a book called Fates and Furies, which I thought was brilliant. I just thought it was extraordinary. It's a very cynical, complicated take on marriage. And her new book is about 180 uh, from Fates and Furies. It's set in the 1100s. And a, um, it's a historic, it's a novel, but it's loosely based on a woman by the name of Marie de France, I think I'm saying that right, who was a poet. Not very much is known, and Lauren Groff has enhanced it. Um, Marie gets ousted from Eleanor of Aquitaine's court and sent to a pathetic abbey that is awful in every way. And Marie de France turns this into a female Vatican, basically. Um, she, she realizes she's an extremely feminist woman. And it is, for one, Lauren Groff is a gifted, poetic kind of a writer. And her, her ability to conjure up a sense of place and time is spectacular. But this is this feels like a contemporary novel in a way, but it's about, Matrix actually doesn't refer to the math. Matrix derivative is mother. Yes, I, I, that occurred to me as you were speaking, which it, I hadn't realized before. Yeah, so Lauren Groff, I'm, I'm in the middle of it, but I am in love with this character. I love the historical information about the time. I love, like she realizes that they could compete with the monks. So nuns were not supposed to be transcribing or copying what we might call typing. But she started promoting their services as cheaper and better than the monks. <laughs> <laughs> so not only did she become religious, almost in an ecstatic way, but she was this very savvy woman about how to harness uh, the the skills and sensibility, and and there's you know sex involved, religion involved, um, 
So it, I just think Lauren Groff is one of the most unusual, smart storytellers out there. So I, right now I'm going to even, even though I haven't finished it or finished some of the others, I'm going to put Matrix at a pretty high in the pile list for books for the fall. Well, you're you're speaking about it so wonderfully that I would say, let me order the book, but I already have it. So uh, <laughs> you, you, sold, you sold me on it, but I uh, you have not literally sold a copy. You, I hope other people. It's a story of my life, Bill. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it's I I love what you're saying about the way she's switched, you know, and doing something new. The the writer, um, one of the writers who I've loved over many, many years, who does a similar kind of thing of, of doing a different kind of thing uh, so often is Jane Smiley. Mm. Um, and, and, and I always, uh, you know, not, I haven't loved each of her books as much as yeah. the others, of course, but she's always taking a risk in her subject matter and uh, a new kind of experiment. It doesn't mean that the books are themselves experimental in the way you might imagine, you know, an experimental novel would be. But her experiments always excite me, even if they don't always satisfy me. So uh, Lauren Groff um, sounds like she's an adventuresome writer. Yeah. Just as Jennifer Egan is, really. And That's right. Uh, so there are, uh, I also love what the description that you give of the book makes me think of uh, a kind of feminist version of Stephen Greenblatt's The Swerve, which is, uh, you know, mm. a book uh, from many years, you know, about five or 10 years ago about how uh, Lucretius's uh, work was survived because of a middle, uh, you know, middle-aged, not middle-aged, a, a, a scribe of the middle ages, not a middle-aged scribe, um, uh, copying it and so the one copy that exists um so uh so put me down for the matrix uh by lauren Groff. and one other little book that i'll mention um while we're talking about feminist books that i started last night and um if i didn't switch because of preparing for today is a never before published book by Simone de, Bo de Beauvoir yes. called Inseparable that Bill, you you'll open this and you won't you want to do nothing else but finish this book. It's just it's small, it's quick, it's um witty. Uh, it, it's a very exciting new book of hers that I think a lot of people will and should pick up and feminist obviously and there's a wonderful story behind i mean she wrote it early or relatively early in her career and uh she gave it to jean-paul sartre you know her paramour her partner uh, who said it. it was terrible right yeah. and yes and so i think it's so uh interesting and important that in it's being republished or published uh with a, a different idea about its value and right I, I hate to say, well, I mean, I don't know why I hate to say it, but I read online uh, an excerpt uh, from Margaret Atwood's beautiful introduction. Introduction. Uh, you know, it was published on a website and uh, the website LitHub. And uh, it made me you know, really excited to read the book. I have a tortured history with Simone de Beauvoir, not that I knew her, but uh, when I was in college in, in my second year of intermediate French, uh, we had to read uh, Simone de Beauvoir's memoir, Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter in French. That was right. the assignment. So uh, I, I can't say that I, I, I admit to uh, my teacher, uh, Dorothy Lackner, I always will remember her name, that I was not able to make my way all the way through uh, uh, memoirs une jeune fille rangée uh, uh, in French, but I, I did eventually read it in English. So uh, Ms. Ms. Lackner, you know, forgive me. Uh, <laughs> All right, let's go back to the fall. What else are you loving? Well, uh, the book that I have wanted to, I, I've read it months ago, uh, you know, as you know, Roxanne, and I, I hate to play 
uh, this marvelous card, but we often get books way in advance. And right. one of the books that I read uh, in the late spring, I guess, when I got it, uh, maybe early summer, uh, is Elizabeth Strout's new book, mm. Oh William. And I have to say the funny thing was, I mean, my name is, is Bill, but it was really William. And uh, when the email came from the publicist that this book was going to be uh, published, uh, the you know, subject line was something like, oh, William. And I know the woman who sent the email, and I thought she was just being funny about how to get my attention for this email. Oh, William, you know, I have something to tell you. <laughs> and so I opened it thinking that she was going to be writing an email about something. And she had, as I say, tried to get my attention. And then I couldn't have been more thrilled that it was Elizabeth Strout's new book. And uh, I love her uh, work. I mean, I've read all of her books um, uh, and she is just one of the great writers of our time. And I think uh, just everything she does is so interesting and exciting and beautiful. So this book is called O William and it is you know, a short book as hers are, but so moving and so uh, elliptical. She doesn't, she doesn't write elliptically like as if you're confused but you know what I love about Elizabeth Strout's book is everything that's in there and all the things she leaves out she she is just trying to get to the essence of her characters yeah the books are not overloaded uh with detail and yet they're Trevor like that way yes that's yes exactly so uh so I I I, I would urge everyone to read oh William not in tribute to me, but um, you know, because uh, uh, Elizabeth Strout is such a magnificent writer, and that's coming out in October. So I would say uh, in about a month, you know, keep your eye out for that. Um, and I would give that an enthusiastic second. I I also adore her. O. William uh, further explores the character of Lucy Barton. Yes, um, who was in uh, my name is was the main character. My name is Lucy Barton. And here she's focusing on marriage, uh, which she often does. But I do think what I what I do love about her books is I think she's got an understanding of human nature that is both clear-eyed and empathetic. Uh, the flaws are there but they're exposed with a kind of understanding that we're all flawed in, in one way or another. And I, I just love that empathy that oozes out of her writing for her characters and therefore for all of us. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. I mean, if, if people have read Olive Kitteridge, they'll, they'll see that. I mean, you know, Olive is not an easy person. I mean, Olive, right. <laughs> in Olive again, and uh, there's so many beautiful things in Olive Again about um, her relationship with her son um, and just uh, the way in which that relationship uh, was an unhappy one, uh, you know, but also one, a continuous one. And uh, I just want to say one thing. So this is another book in that kind of loose trilogy of My Name is Lucy Barton and then um, Anything is Possible. And uh, one of the things that I loved about Anything is Possible, so My Name is Lucy Barton is about Lucy Barton, and then uh, Anything is Possible is about characters who are on the periphery or uh, mentioned but not explored in My Name is Lucy Barton. And uh, I was in a bookstore, my neighborhood bookstore, which is the, the New York City counterpart to R.J. Julia, Three Lives. Um, and uh, I was talking with one of the booksellers about uh, anything is possible. And a woman in the store overheard us and uh, said how she had loved, uh, my name is Lucy Barton, had read Anything is Possible, and then went back and reread My Name is Lucy Barton, which she found to be a revelation. So I never did that. Uh, now I've, uh, now I have to go back to My Name is Lucy Barton and Anything is Possible after having read O. William. Uh, but I once right. uh, met, well, I actually, I'm twice met Elizabeth Strout. Uh, I uh, interviewed her for my segment um, when uh, Olive Again was published uh, shortly before the shutdown. Uh, but I had been talking to her uh, at a party. I met her at a friend's party and I had read uh, 
uh, my name is Lucy Barton at that time. And I was telling her how uh, much I loved it. I mean, I sort of cornered her and she was pleased with what I had to say. I mean, I'm, I'm sure she's heard wonderful praise from a lot of people, but she talked about her idea in that book about uh, what she wanted to do in terms of how she wanted to paint the characters and the amount of background information that was left out uh, and also that we never quite get at the mystery of, of Lucy Barton's relationship with her mother, but we feel you know, mm -hmm. the importance of that relationship. And she said, Elizabeth Strout said, what she was trying to do was just thumbprints. And she mm. gestured with her thumb. And I've never forgotten that. Uh, just that what she, how she creates characters is through these thumbprints that are indelible and yet still so lightly you know, pressed upon you. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. There's big news from my favorite home security company. Simply Safe just launched their new wireless outdoor security camera. That's right, Simply Safe, the system that US News and World Report names best home security system of 2021 just got even better. This brand new outdoor security camera is engineered with all the advanced tech and security features you want and need to help keep you and your family safe. The new wireless outdoor security camera has an ultra-wide 140-degree field of view, so you can keep watch over your entire yard. It has 1080p HD resolution with an 8x zoom. That means you can zoom in and clearly see things like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. It has a built-in spotlight with color night vision, so you can keep an eye on what's going on day and night. It's super simple to set up and usually just takes minutes. And it has an easy to remove rechargeable battery, so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all, and it integrates with your Simply Safe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door, window, and room of your home are protected, and now your property will be too. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, Visit simplysafe.com slash just the right book. What's more, Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash just the right book. Uh, Bill, have you read Colson Whitehead's new book, Harlem Shuffle, yet? Yes, that was another book uh, I was so pleased to receive in, in advance. I loved it. Uh, I did not know, I mean, I've since read interviews with him. Uh, you know, this is a kind of caper novel. Uh, yeah, it's fun. It's very fun. And, you know, it's certainly not what you would expect if you have only read um, uh, Nickel Boys or <laughs> Underground, Underground Railroad. I mean, you have to go to his book, Zone One. Which is a is a zombie novel to really see how uh, you know he can take on these genres and you know make them exciting. But so this is a caper novel, you know, itself a historical novel or set at a moment in the past. And I've since read interviews in which he talks about uh, his uh, the progenitors of, of this kind of like Chester Himes and other writers. And I have not read those, so now I feel like sometimes when I read a book like this, it just opens up completely mm -hmm. new avenues, uh, not only. Colson Whitehead, obviously, if you haven't read others of his books, you want to move on to others. But who was influencing this writer? Who are they talking about? Who are they engaging with? And uh, it was a, a fun, fast, you know, hilarious in many ways uh, novel. I mean, just speedy and so different from his other books. And yet now I feel like I have an entire world uh, to venture into of writers who of the past who I haven't you know, read before. So. You know, the other thing I like about Harlem Shuffle, and I I loved Nickel Boys, loved Nickel Boys, loved Underground Railroad. The thing about this book that was so clever, I mean, it does have a different rhythm, right? It's a jazzier kind of a book with great characters that you're uh, charmed by. But he does still cover racism, but in a much more subtle way, which 
in some ways is a reminder of how we see racism around us. Like Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys, you can begin to attribute racism to abnormal, awful circumstances. Here, it's, no, it's part of life uh, about what's going on. And I like that a lot about Harlem Shuffle. And I love the energy in it. You know, I love the character, Ray, um, who's obviously (laughs) becomes pretty damn conflicted. That's 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 so interesting that the extremes of those uh, other books of the Nickel Boys and Underground Railroad uh, train our eyes on certain things that here uh, are dealt with not in a lighthearted way, but no, they're a constant of of this world uh, too, and um, and and you know that there, he's doing that, and then I haven't read. Uh, his nonfiction book about card playing. He's he's also a, a poker player, a, a gambler. Um, you know, Colson Whitehead himself. Uh, so um, you know, he brings a certain knowingness about about the world, uh, a tricky world. You know, to 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 this this novel, Harlem Shuffle. Yeah, that that's um, uh, I hadn't really connected it in that way to uh, the earlier books. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the change in the extreme. Uh, so now you said you also read a couple of biographies. What are some of those? Yes. Well, so uh, I I read um, a wonderful biography of Oscar Wilde uh, by Matthew Sturgis that is being published. Uh, I think it's coming out in October. Uh, and um, what I found so interesting is, of course, Oscar Wilde is, you know, an unendingly influential, <laughs> right. uh, you know, quoted writer, you know, sort of like Dorothy Parker. I mean, Oscar Wilde and Dorothy Parker said everything that's witty, whether they, you know, whether it can be ascribed to them or not, it is. I mean, you know, so, so many lines. Uh, but what was very interesting, I had read uh, quite a while ago, and I think a lot of people who are interested in Oscar Wilde would have read Richard Elman's biography, which was, which was published in the 80s and has been mm-hmm. seen as definitive. Um, excuse me, there's a truck going by. This is the problem of living in New York City and they, they're obviously not fans of Oscar Wilde. <laughs> but um, so he, Matthew Sturgis in the introduction to the book explains why Richard Elman's book, although wonderful, uh, is necessarily superseded all these decades later. And I found that it was, uh, it was done in a very warm and yet not, uh, he wasn't kind of trying to refute or uh, say that this book was a bad book. He was just saying all of the things that are now available that weren't available and the, 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 the including, uh, which is interesting because as a biographer, I've discovered too that this is uh, a great uh, source of information is over the last decade and two decades, um, uh, the increased digitization of newspapers in particular, newspapers and magazines, has made easily available an entire uh, trove, I mean, I can't think Mm. of the word, of information about people's doings and also about the reactions to people uh, in a way that uh, was irretrievable before. You would have to go, you know, you might look at the New York Times, you might look at the Times of London as the singular source of like uh, the chronicle of what was happening in the past. But now so many newspapers, uh, so many magazines are available. And so it brings up so much of the day to day, the real contemporary Mm. excitement of Oscar Wilde's life um, captured in how he, as a very popular and famous author, was chronicled in his own time. And that was basically completely unavailable to Richard Elman. So it It's a book that draws on a longer historical perspective, but also uh, uh, a a huge amount of contemporary material that uh, was hidden before. Mm. So that biography of Oscar Wilde is quite wonderful. And I, uh, at the other extreme, if we're talking about entertainment, I had a great pleasure reading uh, a dual biography of the Mankiewicz brothers, uh, uh, Herman Mankiewicz, if people saw the movie Mank uh, about the writing of Citizen Kane, uh, Nick Davis, I think, is, is the writer's is name. Is the author. 
is the author. And it's about Herman Mankiewicz and his brother, Joseph Mankiewicz, who made the movie All About Eve and other successful movies. And uh, if you're a movie buff, then you know that is, is a must also. So uh, Nick Davis happens to be a friend. Um, his family goes to the same town in Maine that we go to. And Herman is Nick's grandfather. And Nick's cousin, John Mankiewicz, is also in casting. So I've heard all these Mankiewicz stories for years because obviously having a grandfather and a great uncle like Joe and Herman Mankiewicz casts a large shadow on Mankiewicz uh, descendants and in terms of their writing. But I started the book, I'm, I'm just reading it now, and Nick has a very theatrical, film scripty way of writing the book. So I'm just having a blast with it. On a 180 from the Mankiewicz, uh, the Mank, uh, the uh, biographies of Herman and Joe, one of the biographies that I adored and I interviewed the author um, for the for just the right book is the Ethel Rosenberg biography because Anne Seba takes a, you know, there've been just reams and reams of pages written about Ethel Rosenberg. To some degree, she picks up on information that became available in 2014 um, in some of the grand jury uh, transcripts, but the way Anne writes the story of Ethel Rosenberg, you if you had any doubt that her conviction and even more astonishingly execution was a travesty of justice, you get a full-throated understanding. But she also gives you a bigger picture of Ethel Rosenberg as you know, a socialist more than a communist. And it wasn't as if she was so um, admiring of Russia and communism as she was of the, I, the Marxist idea and the principle out of, you know, a lot of Jews in New York and, and, and in Europe in the 20s and 30s were very progressive about what economics ought to look like for the general good of a population. So I was I was fascinated about uh, by that book on the level of biography, on the level of the sort of Joe McCarthy fear mongering that was tainting everything that was going on, on the level of how the courts worked and how that kind of mania informed actual judicial decisions and the misogyny that was going on where they they, they figured it, she had to it, it, because she was an independent woman she must have also been criminal <laughs> yeah basically yes i mean i'm I, exaggerating there but no but i think that's first of all i agree with you completely it's a very important and uh it's a marvelous book and i i read it uh and, and also was very happy that I got to interview the author for an event, a uh, virtual event that we did um, uh, for the 92nd Street Y. And uh, she graciously stayed up very um, But one of the things that, that I know I just have to say about the book, I mean, it's so well-written and so you know, carefully researched, uh, it has, I, I mean, we know the end of Ethel Rosenberg's story, so I'm not giving anything away by, by you know, referring to the end of the book uh, in, in terms of the storytelling, but the last paragraph and the last sentence of the book uh, are so perfect and so mm. And so the book itself is so good, but it just works up to a brilliant and painful finish. I mean, just summed up in... Uh, a few brief words. I mean, so I, that, that's my hint to people that they should read this book and uh, read it all the way through. But everything you're saying about Ethel Rosenberg as a woman, I was fascinated by how Anne Seba analyzes that. And, you know, that, that basically here was this 
a powerful woman who, of course, must have controlled Julius Rosenberg in a yeah. Lady Macbeth way, uh, as, as well as the fact that she was an inadequate woman. You know, like here she was, an, uh, an overwhelmingly powerful person like Lady Macbeth, and yet completely uh, a failure as a woman also, because one of the things that they played upon or tried to play upon was uh, on one hand her failure as a mother, and then also uh, a wedge. You know that that how could this woman, with these children, uh, not confess or not try to avoid the electric chair? I mean, and and what I thought Anne Seba did so beautifully is give us a full portrait of Ethel Rosenberg as a mm. young woman. I mean, her ideals, her goals, how much she loved her children, and how she struggled to be a very good mother, uh, particularly because her own mother was was so terrible to her. Horrible. Uh, horrible to her and favored uh, uh, the sons of the family. I mean, and David Greenglass, the, the son who would betray Ethel uh, so so hideously and in, in the end, so cavalierly uh, and, and cruelly. So uh, it, it there's all of this going on in that book and it makes you just see everything about the Rosenberg case uh, in a different way, even though it's not trying to exonerate uh, Julius Rosenberg, certainly, um, or even uh, free, you know, the, I mean, Ethel Rosenberg clearly was not a guilty party in this thing. Yeah. So, Bill, uh, before we get to a couple of other books. I, I think we're going to have to do part two of the show uh, or something because there's so many we're not uh, getting to. But so you referred early on to the, you know, the, the, the plethora or onslaught of, onslaught of books. And I can't remember, as we said, a season where I feel almost frantic about what I want to get to and I can't get to. I mean, I go into the bookcase, I look at the bookcase in the bookstore with staff suggestions and I'm like, I want, I'm like a little kid, you know, even though it's my own store, it's like, I, I want this and I want that and I want to read this. So we naturally don't, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, make this presumption on your part. I, in the years that I've owned the bookstore, I finished less and less books. Before I had the store, I would never not finish a book because what if I miss something on page 180? What if, what if it rewards me, but only at the end? So I would never not finish a book. Now, I think I might only finish one out of 10 books, because I want to look at so many. And I'm worried that I give it less and less pages and not enough pages to really experience the breadth of the book. How do you think about that? Well, I too, I'm, you know, I'm overwhelmed. I mean, and one of the, one of the things uh, since, since the pandemic, um, I've been doing my segment from home, filming it at home, uh, and, and not being live in the studio with the anchors uh, the way I usually am. And you know, because the format is different, I've actually been able to talk about fewer books because it's, the segment isn't quite as long. And you know, so I've sort of used to talk about three or four books. Now I talk about two or three books. Uh, and, um, and so I feel the pressure too of, you know, of fewer, of, of less time. And, mm -hmm. and, and I guess I leave more and more to the side of saying, well, that sounds interesting. I'll catch up with that later. And that mm. makes me feel bad. You know, like I'm yeah, exactly. a failure. Uh, and, and so what I try to do, uh, because I also uh, want uh, to read as much as possible. And yet if I'm not interested, I I don't feel as guilty as I used to. I mean, I guess I'm agreeing with yeah. you. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do in my segment, and so this shapes part of my reading, you know, if I'm going to talk about a segment uh, for a book on the segment, is I don't give negative reviews on the segment. I mean, nobody is waiting for me 
yeah. in the brief period of time that I have to tell them what not to read. So, right. so, so I often just, you know, I, I feel liberated when I don't like a book enough to talk about it uh, and yet guilty too. Uh, so I find myself reading the first few pages, especially if it's a nonfiction book, reading the first few pages and then skipping ahead to see, well, does the tone change slightly? Mm -hmm. uh, is, is it, was it just the, pro the author had the, a problem, which many do and I have had- At takeoff. <laughs> at takeoff, like how to introduce this to the reader. Um, and later on in the book, I mean, if you read 10 or 15 pages, you can see the balance of the writer's tone, how they used whatever material they had to research. And, and sometimes that will make me go back. Uh, but I guess what I would say in response to your syndrome uh, is that I have the same one and that I find more and more reason to exclude books uh, than I used to. And I guess it's partly the pressure that I feel to, you know, with the amount of books that there are to keep up with. I'm less patient. Um, yeah with things that take a while to get going. And that's true also with novels. I mean, it's it, it's easier to tell, I think, for me uh, at the start, whether I'm interested in a novel. You know, a nonfiction book can draw you in, I find, in a way that novels, uh, most novels for me, don't over time. Like, if you're not interested in, in them at the beginning, uh, you know, it's harder for me uh, to get interested in them later. Although. I have friends who say, oh, you know, we must read this book. Just, you know, get through the first 50 pages. But yeah. You know, uh, so, so I guess I'm, I'm, I too am looking for ways uh, to exclude books from my purview because I want to really be excited about the books I read and I yeah. don't want them to feel like homework, even though sometimes they are. One trick that I would say that I have done I know I'm going to be interested in a book, but for whatever reason, the timing isn't right. Um, and I guess this uh, comes from my training as a journalist, which you know I used to work for a magazine, a newspaper, et cetera. I will often, when I'm interested in a book, uh, hope that I can interview the author for some event somewhere. Mm -hmm. and, and so then I have a deadline to, to read the book. So I have a couple of those coming up later in the fall. And um, I, you know, I'm going to be uh, interviewing uh, uh, Francis Wilson, um, who has a book that's just published called Burning Man, The Trials of D.H. Lawrence. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not only reading that because of that. I am really, really excited about it. But it was published in August at a moment where I couldn't yet read it. So I'm interviewing her at the end of October. So I have that as a kind of, oh, I'm so excited. I'm eventually going to get to this book. I'm really going to read it. Uh, so, so making a book and a, a journalistic assignment for, for me sometimes uh, makes me focus on it when uh, it was published in August, as this book was, and I just didn't have time then, you know. So, so uh, I just, I, I think I'm like you. And yet, as I say, as a journalist, if it's an assignment, I can say, oh, yay, I have to read that. And it's not really a homework assignment, but I do have a deadline. Yeah. So, Bill, I think we're exactly alike because for the books that, uh, for the authors that we interview on Just the Right Book, I'm the one choosing the book. So it's not. And what I love about it, even though it becomes a deadline, as you well understand, I feel like I get to go to school because I'm doing nonfiction only. And what I learn is like wildly exciting. And I'm glad for the deadline because I might not finish it because of something else I have to get to. So I think we're exactly the same. You just said in that, in that, in your comments, you said something that I think will liberate me yet another level. And that is I don't really have to work at a book because it's supposed to be a big book or somebody told me to read it. And I thought about that in two instances. Last night, I started reading Evan Osnos's new book, Wildlands. 
and I'm going to be interviewing him for the podcast. I immediately, immediately fell into this book. I love the way he writes. He has a Michael Lewis way of telling a story, a nonfiction, making a nonfiction point in a storytelling way. And, you know, from page one, from page one, I was loving, loving this book. And I thought, why should I work hard when there's so many books that grab you immediately? And it doesn't make that one book's right or wrong. It's just right or wrong for me and maybe just right or wrong for me at that moment. And, and you know, I think a lot of times, I mean, you as a bookseller come in contact with so many different you know, customers and so many different tastes. Right, right. And I think even if you haven't liked a book, I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't understand that. The appeal. The appeal of it and that certain people really will like it. And so uh, that's one of the things that I admire um, about you know, as I said, our local RJ Julia, which is Three Lives, I mean, that no one, none of the staff there is ever telling you, uh, you know, to read something that they disliked, but they understand your own taste. And so they can often point out things that you should yeah, read. Yeah, that's right. Even if they haven't read it. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, my work is slightly different, but um, no, that's, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, that, Good books shouldn't be work. That doesn't mean you don't feel guilty uh, as a reader that oh, I meant to read this more quickly. Or yeah, that is. But uh, you know, to to put a book down uh, is is you know hard to do. I mean, I think we feel like we failed ourselves and the the author, but it it shouldn't be work in that in that way. So, Bill, we've got just a few minutes left. Why don't we each quickly mention two books okay. coming out this fall? Well, one of the books that um, I am very excited about and I'm reading now is uh, a book called Never Silent, which is a memoir by Peter Staley, who was a member of ACT UP. And I'm reading it partly because I'm writing about Larry Kramer, but he's also a very interesting figure. And I, and I had just read, and it was, I love the juxtaposition. You, it's, that seems things that are accidentally juxtaposed in your reading life become revelatory. Um, and a book that I had read just uh, almost exactly, you know, the previous to starting this was Unbound, um, which is the memoir by, memoir by Tarana Burke, uh, you know, who uh, started the Me Too movement, yeah. you know, cr created that hashtag, and then it, it took off in a different way. So reading these two activist memoirs and to see how change uh, in our society does and doesn't take place and how some mm -hmm. changes happen quickly, but then aren't necessarily long lasting, but always to see how it's lived through these writers' experiences. So th those are uh, two books that are out now or you know coming out in the fall. And then uh, uh, one thing, uh, that I want to uh, say, because we haven't talked about this writer, but he's really uh, one of the writers I love, love, love most in the world uh, is Amor Tolls. Mm. He has a new book that's being published in um, October uh, by Viking uh, called The Lincoln Road. And uh, I just urge everyone to read it. Uh, his books are just such perfect, uh, you know, Gentlemen in Moscow and uh, Rules of Civility are perfect time capsules, again, coming back to the historical novel that uh, just transports you, but are just, they're such perfect books. And uh, and he's the nicest man. Oh, that's, that's good. He's the know. loveliest man. I only met him once very briefly at a party. Mm -hmm. So I'm very pleased to know that, uh, that, that he is a, a good person. Uh, so I would say... Uh, Amor Tolls' new book, and one book that I haven't uh, read yet uh, that I want to read um, is uh, Anthony Doerr's new book, mm -hmm. uh, which is, um, and I forget, is it? Cuckoo. Cuckoo. Yes, it's a long title that I-, I Cuckoo yeah, Land? Yes. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to read that because uh, he is such a, um, all, uh, he's such a wonderful writer. And um, 
uh, oh God, now the name just went out of my, oh, the other book that I have now to read next, which is uh, I think being published next week is um, Calm Toy Bin's- uh, The Calm Magician. Yes, The Magician, which is- uh, I'm dying to read that. About the life of Thomas Mann and his book, uh, The Master about Henry James was so great. So I'm really excited about that. I loved his book, Brooklyn. I loved his book, Nora Webster. Uh, he does so many different yeah in his in his novels and so so i would say that and then for january can we look ahead to january i'll just say as a final book that i'm looking so forward to is hana yanagahara's new book she wrote uh, a little life and she has a new book coming out oh i'm excited i haven't you know what i don't have a copy of that no i mean uh i haven't yet either and so i i'm looking forward to reading that and uh looking forward to a bigger and brighter and better uh, 2022. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so those those are some of the books I would say. But Amor Tolls, uh, uh, Anthony Dore, uh, Hanya Yanagahara, and um, Colm Toy Bean, uh, through four different writers, each of them just so brilliant at what they do. And uh, so I, those are four writers with books in the next few months. That All right, here's, here's I, some that I will... Uh, mention quickly. One is Sarah Rule's Smile, the story of a face. So Sarah Rule's a playwright that I love. Um, and this is about her developing after uh, she delivers a child, Bell's palsy in her, um, you know, and she, her emerging from all of that, but she's, you know, funny and smart and insightful. And uh, so I started this one and loved it. The other one is um, Gary Steingart. So super sad, super sad, true love story is like in my top 50 books of the last decade. I just think he's so funny. And his new book, Our Country Friends, is just as funny. And I would, descri I would describe it as absurdist Chekhov. And it literally is set in a country estate, you know, but in modern times with a ludicrous Russian guy who's the, you know, literally or figuratively the Lord of the Manor and his hilarious array of friends. And then two books that I want to mention that I don't think are, they're getting attention but I don't know that they're getting the attention they're deserved. One is called Edge Case by YZ Chin that is about a Malaysian couple who live in the United States. The husband disappears. Um, and she, she is writing in a um, very accessible way, but with a very different way of telling a story. But the book I want to close with, which I think is brilliant, I think this book is brilliant, is called What Strange Paradise by Omar L. And I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce his last name correctly, Akkad, A-K-K-A-D. He was the guy who wrote American War. So this is... Um, Reminds me of Exit West, which I loved. Yes. So it is about two characters that you will not quickly forget. One is an eight-year-old boy who's washed up on a beach in an island from yet another overturned refugee boat. And he is befriended by a teenage girl who's a native to that island. And their story is just a distillation of what the refugee circumstances look like. And about, because they're both young, what the author does is enter this conversation of refugees in a totally different way. But I, 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 I'm not quite done with it, but I think the book is actually brilliant. Well, that's, that sounds very exciting. Um, I 
now I am going to have to buy a copy of <laughs> RJ Juliet. That or call up the publisher and get a copy. It's I don't from, have, uh, uh, wait, let's see who published this. One second. Uh, Kanaf. Okay, well, thank you, you. You'll know them to call and get a copy of the book, Bill. Um, I wanted to say, I think I misspoke earlier. Uh, Amor Tolls' book is called The Lincoln Highway. I said The Lincoln Road, uh, which was a street in my, my neighborhood in Brooklyn when I was growing up. Uh, so it's, it's The Lincoln Highway, bigger and better than a road. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I just, uh, Hanya Yanagahara's new novel in January is called Two paradise so here's another book uh with oh with paradise in the title so it, it lets you know what we're longing for exactly oh that's perfect <laughs> thank you Robert. that's exactly it we are all longing for the paradise of a book uh so we've been talking with uh bill goldstein who um reviews books in hosts uh authors on nbc's weekend today he has a book. Uh, he's working on a biography of Larry Kramer. I think, Bill, we're going to have to have part two as we finish some of these books and the books finish coming out. But it's been great fun. Um, thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Oh, thank you, Roxanne. I had a great time and I can't wait to come back. Thank you. All right. So maybe, Bill, we'll all we'll all be seeing each other in New York soon. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Or in Madison, Connecticut. I'm or in Madison, there. Connecticut. Some, some family reunion of my husband's soon enough. So. All right, Bill. Thank you so much. Bye. Take Thank care. You. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.